Esther chapter 4, verse 10 through 17. Let me read it for us in ESV. Hear the word of God. Then Esther spoke to Hethak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the, king, uh, the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold fast, hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered them. Amen. Let me just set this up for real, uh, real quick before I get to, I guess, the, some of the points that I want to share with, with all of you. Uh, if you don't know, Book of Esther is the story of a Jewish nation that was scattered throughout the, whole, the world after uh, the exile when the Babylonian Empire led by King Nebuchadnezzar uh, destroyed the nation of Israel and, then, and the whole nation was scattered all over the world. Next empire that came to power was the Persian Empire. And the book of Esther begins by uh, showcasing the pride and the lust and the pursuit of power and dominance by this Persian king. Let me just summarize what happens in the beginning of Esther that lead us to the passage we have just read now. There are some series of quote-unquote circumstances, and as you and I know, as God's people, as we know that God is sovereign and that there is no such thing as coincidences it is God's sovereignty at work and if you think that these are series of coincidences we are mistaking first coincidences or event that occurs is that King Xerxes gets drunk and the second event second coincidence is that the queen uh, the, the king sends for the queen to come and entertain him and the guests but the queen refuses to show up on the requesting of the king. And this made King Xerxes furious and mad and made him act to get rid of the queen. And now we come to our passage and there is a crisis for the Jews in the whole diaspora region. And the antagonist, the enemy in this case, is Haman and he has convinced the king Xerxes to form a decree or a law to wipe out all the Jews in his kingdom because they are a hindrance to his world dominion and world power. In Esther 4, chapter, seven, uh, chapter 4, verse 7 to 8, we didn't read this 
read this verse, but let me just read this to you. It says, the Mordecai, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her, of her people. Mordecai was not only Esther's uncle, but her stepfather who raised her all her life. You see, Esther was an orphan. So Mordecai was like her only family and had a father and it was her, uh, it, he was her father figure in her life. So mo whatever Mordecai told her to do, she obeyed. And that is until now. What was Esther's response? Verse 11, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. What is that law? To be put to death except the one to whom king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, and this is what Esther is, is saying to Mordecai, as for me, I have not been called to come into the king's presence for these 30 days. In other words, I am not entitled to stop this matter. I am not in the position to do anything, even though there was a prices for the Jewish nation. You see, by this time, Esther had been saturated by the culture of that age. The Persian culture, let me just explain to you a little bit, it's, it's very much like the New York, New York culture, New York City culture. It looks out for their own well-being. It's very self-focused, individualistic. And for the first two chapters of Esther, you see the culture of this kingdom come into play. It was about the outward appearance, starting with King Xerxes throwing this long and extravagant party left and right to showcase his wealth and showcase his power. He then is displeased with his own queen, Vashti, and he disposes of her with a click of a finger and selects another queen, which Esther now takes the place of. It is this kingdom mindset that Esther was has brought up in and buying into. But it got to her, and now she is telling her cousin Mordecai, her, in, in, in a sense, her father figure, her father, that she would listen to all her life to obey, that she is powerless to break away from the Persian system of doing things. Now, are you, for you and me, living in this culture, in New York City, in New Jersey, very individualistic Western culture, individualistic culture, are you powerless to break away from the system that you are in right now? It's not too far-fetched to compare the system that Esther was in to the system that we are living in right now. Perhaps you've been doing things a particular way at work, at home, with your friends, whether it be addictions, whether it be habits. You know, you start to have small compromises here and there, and now it becomes a, a full-blown 
addiction and a habit. See, for most of us, it's this self, right? Selfishness, self-absorption, and self-focused behaviors and patterns. Anything that begins with the word self, right, is what you need to watch out for. Some of the things that we can ask ourselves is, are you looking out for your own well-being when others are hurting and being impacted around you? Are you showing or are you shoving the responsibility to others in the church or around you rather than pointing the finger at yourself? And in the book of Esther is essentially telling the reader, you need to be called out and get out of your own kingdom. Get out of your own self-kingdom. You are making a little kingdom for yourself just like Esther was doing. You start calculating and thinking convenience and comfort over the cross. So I just have three quick points this morning that God calls us and allows us to think about and respond to his message. Amen? First point, God calls us or calls you and me out of a kingdom. A kingdom. What is this kingdom? In order to be effective workers for God's kingdom, you first need to get out of your own little kingdoms. Here we see in the story of one of the most powerful kingdoms in terms of wealth and power and longevity in the world history, the Persian kingdom. Yet I believe the author of Esther is trying to show another kingdom at work that is working as equally and as powerfully as the outward kingdom of Persia that is even more destructive. What is that kingdom? It is the kingdom of self. Kingdom of self. You see, Mordecai calls her out. I don't know if, if in this community or you have people around you that are, that are able to be bold and that loves you, that cares for you, to call each one of you out. My wife does that to me all the time. <laughs> She loves me so much to the point where she calls me out out of my own little kingdom. Mordecai was this person to Esther. Mordecai knew what Esther was doing. She was trying to put herself in this shell thinking that she can escape from trouble and harm's way, but he exposes her self-protectiveness and self-security. How does Esther try to escape? The Bible says, by keeping silent. By keeping silent. You see, you know, we heard the term, the phrase, silence speaks volume. Silence speaks volume. In this case, Esther was, was speaking, was taking a stand while keeping silent. <laughs> by wanting to keep silent, she was saying much more about her state of mind. As we find out about Mordecai's response, she was being self-protective and just thinking about her own well-being. You know, there was an, there's a Christian author who is, is pretty well known. His name is Os Guinness, and he wrote a book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. And this is what he says, and I thought it was very interesting, and it really hits uh, the nail on the head of the age that we're living in right now, even, even in the church. He says, 
the triumph of the therapeutic which plagues much of the Western Christendom, says Guinness, the overall story of pastoral care in the United States has been summed up as the shift from salvation to self-realization. Made up of smaller ships from self-denial to self-love to self-mastery and finally to self-realization. The victory of the therapeutic over theology is therefore nothing less than the secularization and replacement of salvation. Two sociologists did a a study of popular inspirational literature from 1875 to 1955. They concluded their survey in this way. The evangelical literature, even the theology books, unfortunately, presents a man-centered rather than a God-centered religion. It is preoccupied with power, success, life mastery, and a peace of mind and soul, and not with salvation in in the sense of the term. Look at the patterns in our lives. Perhaps you have begun a new job. In my church, there's a lot of young people, so they they go through jobs, seasons of life, and they come to me, Pastor Brian, should I take this job? Should I take that job? Should I quit this job to go on to, uh, you know, nonprofit organization? To be honest with you, my answer is, I don't know. (laughs) Please do not come to me and ask me. I don't, I don't say it that way. But it's not a particular job, whether it's a bank, being a banker, being a pharmacist. That is not what's important here. Maybe some of you, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of, a lot of you, it seems like there's a lot of couples here, and, and I'm, I'm, sometimes I speak a lot to singles and I talk a lot about relationships too. You know, some, a lot of people get into new relationships, new cell group, new ministry with a fresh conviction. Little by little, you are making compromises here and, and there. And you see yourself, why am I getting so jaded in my relationship with God? Is God's word fresh? to me every day, not just on a Sunday. Am I exercising my faith to get out of my own little bubble and reigning in the kingdom of God here and now? You know, I hear this all the time from our church congregation, you know, Pastor Brian, I don't think I'm called to be a cell group leader. I don't think I'm called to be doing outreach. I think I'm more you know, because since I'm, I'm in finance, you know, a lot of people work in New York City. They, they commute by train, and they say, you know, I'll, I'll just serve, uh, you know, in the finance committee because I'm in finance. If, you know, if half of the people here in finance, you, you all can't be serving in the finance committee. <laughs> and, and, and this is what I say to people in, in our congregation. It's not about looking at yourself and what you're good at what you think that you you can accomplish. Perhaps your cell group may have one person the whole semester, whole year. Is that considered a failure in God's eyes? No, there was a guy in my church. He had 
first semester of leading cell group, he had 20 people, 20 men. And, you know, he came to me after the middle of the semester and said, oh, Pastor Brian, cell group is so good. I love cell group. And, you know, and, and he made a little joke. You know, there, and you and I know there is some truth to all the jokes that you, that you and I say, right? Oh, I must be so good at cell group leading. And I, I could tell, man, this guy is getting arrogant. Next semester, how many people did he have? Because we, we do a, a fresh way of, of cell group signing up. Next semester, he only had two people. And I met up with him in the same semester. And I said, his name was Andy. Hey, Andy, how many people do you have right now? He said, and he, he couldn't look at me in the face. <laughs> he said, yeah, I only have two, but I'm working on it. No, you don't work on anything. <laughs> and, then, and then we had a heart-to-heart talk. I said, Andy, you see, it's not about having 20 people or two people, right? It's developing a heart of God, having a kingdom mind. And sometimes when we talk to people about ministry, reaching out, subgroup, it, it, it just becomes foreign language to us. But doing good, reaching out, loving people, you know, it, calling people throughout uh, the week, is that, is that foreign to you and me? Is that a, is that a foreign thing? Or is it like a, 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 like a meal that you eat, three meals a day, just, just so natural? If praying and reading the word, caring for the poor, giving up earthly possession to gain eternity is becoming more and more important to you, you have built a kingdom for yourself that is highly fortified. Widely vast and deeply entrenched in this world. How do you know this? This is a good indication. If someone, let's say, confronts you, maybe somebody that's in the church that loves you, confronts you, or whether it's your wife, whether it's your husband, that confronts you about spending habits, confronts you even about lust, pornography, what's your immediate response? Well, it's not so bad. I'm not as bad as Mr. Kim. I'm not as bad as Deacon Chang. I'm not, see, the way you know that you have been building little kingdoms for yourself is that you start to compare yourself to other people and that you minimize your sin. You minimize your sin. That's exactly what happened with the rich young ruler. When Jesus confronts him, when Jesus comes to him, actually, the Bible actually describes the rich, uh, Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler this way, he loved him before he confronted him. He loved him. And Jesus, verse 21 of Mark chapter 10, looking at this rich young ruler, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and then you can come and follow me. In his response, the Bible says he was dejected, disheartened, discouraged. And he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You see, to the rich young ruler, he had, he had obeyed 
you know, not to kill, not to lie, not to you know, do these bad things. But when Jesus confronted him with the heart, the deep heart matters and issue, you could tell that he was already building a kingdom for himself. And that one question totally revealed what kind of kingdom he was building. So God calls you out of your kingdom, this kingdom of self. Get out, get out, get out. This is what Mordecai was saying, telling Esther. Second, not only does God call you out of this kingdom of self, he also prepares you for his kingdom. He prepares you for his kingdom. Who, who was Esther? Before being taken into the king's court and becoming a queen of Persia, she was an orphan, like I said, and, and, and a cousin of Mordecai. Before Esther was rebuked hard by his stepfather, Mordecai, let us look at her upbringing. We could see that she was raised, being taught with certain values and specific purpose. How do we know? In Esther chapter 2, verse 7, he was bringing up Hadessah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, Mordecai, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Mordecai was very influential in shaping Esther's values and thinking process. And not only that, in Esther chapter 2, verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. In other words, Mordecai has such a huge influence on her life and her values. This is why I, I always, I believe the, uh, not only the, the horizontal mission, the, you know, we talk about the 1040 horizontal mission reaching out to you know, the, 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 the 1040 window of the world map, but not only that, but the, the vertical mission is equally, if not more important, raising our children. As, as Elder Peter reminded, I have four kids. I don't know how many of you guys have kids, but man, it's like going to two, from two to three is like heaven and hell difference. It's like, you know, playing man to man and now you're, you have to play zone, right? Going from three to four isn't as bad, but it's, it's still tough. And I realize, you know, my oldest is nine and a half, ten years old. She just completed third grade, and, and she comes back after, you know, she goes to a public school, and, and she says, you know, Dad, about, like, is it, is it okay to, to marry a woman? And she, you know, she, and I said, oh, wh where, where did you hear this from? You know? Oh, my, my teacher, she said that it's okay. What? I know public school, it's, it's, it's frightening out there, but what is going on? And Mordecai was, was caring for her, shaping her values, loving her, but yet when she entered this queen's palace in the, in the, in the Persian culture and, and the influences that are happening all around her, she has been indoctrinated, she has been influenced to the point where she wasn't able to recognize her father's voice, stepfather's voice. Maybe she's, she's saying, man, I'm a grown woman. 
<laughs> That's why my, my daughter says, you know, can I get a phone? I said, phone? You're nine. Why do you need a phone? Well, all my friends have it. Well, you know, I, all your friends jump off the building, you know, you're going to jump off the building. I had to make this argument, you know. She's like, appa! Give me a break. And then we see Esther responding to her cousin's command by turning it down. I have not been called. I have not been called. See, is that going to be our response? Oh, you know, Pastor Sam or, or Elder Peter comes up to you, you know, can you serve as a cell group leader? Oh, I've been not been called. I've been not been called. It's like you have to hear a direct voice from God. No, that's not how it works. We are all called by God in his kingdom. Amen? We are all. She responds by saying she has not been called. But what was her real motivation for refusing Mordecai's request? Fear. Fear. (laughs) This dirty four-letter word that starts with an F. Fear. And Mordecai, man, he does not mince words. In verse 12, Mordecai told them to tell Esther, do not think to yourself that you will escape. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Wow. That is some harsh words to his own daughter that he raised. That is a right-on assessment by Esther, by Mordecai, of Esther by Mordecai. Now, Paul Tripp is a famous author. Maybe some of you have heard of him and and maybe even uh, read some of his books. He talks about the self-culture and, and when, you, when you look at passages like Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, you know, some, all of us know this verse. It says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. We know that verse. Treasures in heaven, treasures in heaven. You and I hear that all the time. Lay it up there. Do not be anxious about your life, you will, what you will eat, what you will drink, what your body and what you will put on. And he talks about this passage in particular. This is what he says about this culture and this age. He says, I'm convinced that this passage in Matthew is an elaborate unpacking of the thoughts and desires and actions of the kingdom of self. Notice the turn in the passage in verse 33 where Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God. The word but tells us this verse is the transition point of the passage where everything before it explains the operation of another kingdom, which is the kingdom of self. That's why the, the passage the, the, in chapter uh, you know, 16 of Matthew says, you know, you, 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 we, 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 what shall we drink? What shall you do? What shall we do, uh, you know, lay for ourselves? Exactly what he's saying is we are so preoccupied with self and what we need to do rather than the kingdom. You know, my second daughter, she just turned six. Uh, you know, she'll be turning seven soon. Uh, she, 
So when she heard that, uh, I mean, I'm going to share this a little bit later, but uh, I'm going to be planning a church in Queens in the beginning of January. And uh, I had to break the news to my, my kids. And when, you know, when I told my first one, she was sad, but, you know, she understood you know, that her father was a pastor. When I told the third, uh, you know, when she's four, she was too young to really understand. And my you know, last one, she's eight months old. So, I mean, I'm not going to tell her that I'm going to, she's just going to come with me, right? And she has no choice. But my second daughter, she, she was devastated. I couldn't understand. I mean, I, I could understand, you know, she has her friends. But, but more so, I, it, this was so funny to me. But she, she doesn't have her own room because I have four kids. So it, all, you know, all of them have to share a room. And because, you know, she has her unni or older sister, like nothing that she has, you know, she, she, even though she has her own toys, she has her own stuff, nothing she has feels like it's really hers. So, you know, and, and, and my wife and I, whenever we say, you know, go to Anni's room, even though it's her room too, we refer to it as Anni's room, and she gets so upset. Anni's room, that's my room too. So she secretly one day made a little office space for herself in her room. And it's, it's a closet, right? It's a closet. So, uh, you know, I thought they were, you know, they, I said, you know, go clean your uh, clothes, put your clothes away. And one day when I opened the closet, I was like, there was a stapler in there. <laughs> there's like, there's a little, uh, little you know, flip. Uh, it, it's, like a, uh, it's like a toy, but she made it into a little a laptop, computer. I, I was like, what is going on here? And I said, and I, one day I, I took, and all the other kids were occupied. So I just took my second daughter out for ice, ice cream. And I was like, oh, you know, um, her name's Ami. Hey, Ami, you know, I, I saw that you have a little office. How's, how's the office coming along? <laughs> you know, I was just kind of making conversation. And she's like, oh, it's great. And she's like, she's like oh, this office is the best thing that can happen to me. And then, and then I, I uh, brought up the, the topic of, you know, going to Queens. And I said, and then her, and she was eating ice cream, but she, her face got, you know, sad again. I said, you know, wh- what is it about going to Queens that, that makes you, uh, you know, sad, the most sad? And he said, she said, I have to give up my office. I thought it was going to be like my friends. <laughs> I think I'm going to miss my church. I'm going to miss, you know, the pool that we have. We, we have a pool, uh, you know, in our house. And I thought she was going to say all these things. That I'm going to miss my office. And I said, what about the office that you're going to be missing the most? And she said, I, I, it blew my mind that a six-year-old would say that. She said, this is where I have my quiet time. <laughs> I was like, quiet time? <laughs> I don't know if I should be happy. (laughs) I was secretly happy that I I wonder if she's having quiet time with God or (laughs) quiet time by herself. But I realized that whether you're six, whether you're 56 or 66, you have this treasure in your heart, right? That you, you, you just are unable to let go unable to let go and really this treasure is really about the two kingdoms and the heart being summary being the summary term for the inner man could be characterized 
as a casual core of the personhood. What Jesus is saying here in this passage in Matthew is profound. He's suggesting that there's a war of treasure that's being fought at the center of what makes you think what you think, desire what you desire, and do what you do. Whether you are conscious of it or not, your words and your actions are always your attempt to get out of what's valuable to you. Whether you live in New York City, whether you live in the countryside of of Pennsylvania or New Jersey, our heart, our heart is an idol factory. We desire, we long, and we idolize what it wants to idolize. So God prepares you for his kingdom. He just doesn't send you to do his kingdom. He prepares you just like David. You know, we read, uh, you know, I, I'm sorry, I, I, before coming here, I, I was listening to a sermon by Pastor Sam. I wanted to know what his sermon style was, would be like. I didn't want to, you know, shock you guys. You know, maybe he's a quiet and just kind of methodical guy. Blah, blah, and then you got to be like, what's going on here? So I wanted to know what his style was. And I, I heard his sermon on Psalm 23. It was, I was so blessed. Right? And, and it's like, wherever you are, God is the shepherd that leads you and prepares you for his kingdom work, just like God prepared David when he was a young man as a shepherd fighting bears and lions. Right? Contending for that big day when he had to face the biggest challenge of all, Goliath. God prepares you and me so that you can be going out into the city. Whether you're working here, living here, God has called you. And God not only called you, but God is preparing you for his kingdom work. Amen? And not only does he prepare you for his kingdom, but he calls you into his kingdom. I love this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together. He says, Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end of all, his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause, he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. There is his commission, his work. The kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be of the kingdom of Christ. What a statement. He wants to be among friends, to sit among roses and lilies, not with the bad people, but the devout people. Oh, you blasphemers and betrayers of Christ. This is what he says of people that are in the church. I don't know how many pastors and preachers would say this. If Christ had done what you are doing, who would ever have been spared? And that is the exact point that Mordecai is making to Esther. For if you keep silent at this time, you will be perished.
What does it mean to choose the kingdom of God? In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, when Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Your pursuit, your desire all needs to be out of yourself and into God-directed mission and kingdom. There is no two ways about it. It's one or the other. As James, in the book of James, says, do not be double-minded. You, can have, you can't have your foot here and there and think that your prayers will be answered. Here, Mordecai tells Esther to abandon key things that we need to seek for the kingdom of God. First, isolation. You are not your own. You have been created for a purpose. Not only that, you have not been created for yourself but others. That's why God has formed a community of believers. But we try so hard to escape that because of our eagles are filled with pride, isn't it? Rather than engaging people, we isolate ourselves. That is the first sign of whether or not you are engaging in God's kingdom. Second is silence. By you keeping silent about your faith, we are being a coward and not facing up to the issues and problems that face this, this generation. You see, I think this is, more, this is really prevalent for us as Korean Americans and Asian Americans, right? We don't want to speak up. I think it's the, the culture that, we, that we're raised up. Oh, do not raise your voice, you know? Your parents would tell you. And that we become docile Not only do we have the addiction of power and pornography and drugs and all these things, but I believe the biggest addiction that we, that, that, that we have to face in this generation is the addiction of doing nothing. Keeping silent. And when Mordecai points out to Esther whether she has come to the kingdom for such a time as this, he is not just talking about, the Bible is not just talking about, you know, specifically Esther and the Jewish nation, but he is also projecting the message to his church. Now, you and me. And we are able to say, not just say these prayers, and these, these were beautiful prayers that we uttered before I came up here, right? Call and response, but not just talking about them, but living it out with power. Power. Let me just conclude this message by just sharing a little bit about myself and, and just the testimony that God has been doing in my life. Um, so two years ago, I, I received a conviction uh, to plant a church and, and to build God's house so that you know, those who do not know Jesus Christ could come and we can have a community where you know, people can be equipped, not just come to hear the sermon on Sunday, but to be equipped and to become a, uh, become a disciple of Jesus Christ. So God has called me and, and, and a team of 12 of us, if you can just show that uh, real quick, 12 of us, these, this is my core team, our core team. Uh, we're praying right now in, in planning stages to go uh, plant a church in uh, Queens. 
uh, more specifically Bayside, uh, New York. And uh, when you, you probably are not going to know, uh, you know, by looking at this picture, but when I look at this picture, my, my heart jumps, uh, not with excitement, but with worry, because there's a lot of weird people in this group, <laughs> a lot of um, jobless people, <laughs> a lot of students. And, but I realized, man, why is God calling me to plant a church with this group? <laughs> and I realized God keeps telling me over and over and over again, it's because you're weird. Like me, I'm weird. <laughs> because you are nothing. You are pathetic. And, and you are leading a group of nothing People that are nothing and going, doing something great, not because you're great, but let me show you my power, my grace is sufficient for you. And before I, I received the conviction, I have, to, I have to kind of go back even eight years uh, before that. You see, our church, you know, our church, GCC, has always been a church planting church. So in 2007, that was the same year, November of 2007. I still remember it because that's the week later, a week earlier I got married. Uh, November, I, don't think my wife is not here. Uh, I got married in November, uh, November 17th, <laughs> uh, 2007. And November 25th, we started a church in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And I was the, the, I guess, the, the campus pastor there. And long story short, we had to close that site down in 2011. After four years, uh, we had to close it down because it wasn't, a church wasn't healthy. Uh, we weren't growing, uh, not just, you know, numerically, but spiritually. There was such, it was, it, and then for me, I just started my marriage. I started seminary, and I had, just, I had my first kid there. It was so hard for me to lead. And, and most of, of the reason that it didn't work out, in my opinion, is because of my lack of leadership. So after that church plant failed, I, I just felt like God, was, God has abandoned me, and I was ready to quit ministry. And before, I, w- I, and I was ready to go to my senior pastor and say, you know, I'm, I'm going to step down. And, and he's not just my senior pastor, but he's my mentor and my friend. And I went to Pastor Jay and I said, you know, I'm ready to not only step down from GCC, but I'm ready to step down from ministry for good. And I still remember his words. He said, go ahead. I said, oh, this is going to be easy. And I said, go ahead. If you want to, and he, he, he gave it to me. So if you want to live like a loser, go ahead. I said, what? I already felt like a loser. <laughs> and he said, you, and you said, he said, and he said to me, you're not a loser because this church plan failed. Your church, church, church plan failed. You're a loser because you are giving up not only on God, but on God's people. And to be honest with you, I did not quit ministry, not because I was convicted not to, but because I was afraid of him. <laughs> I was afraid of Pastor Jay and what he thought of me. So, I, so, he, so we agreed to go come back to the South Brunswick, the central site, 
And for me to be just, uh, you know, taking a break and just being a, a, a lay person. After a year, I went back and I became one of the pastors in there. And at that moment, I realized I'm never, I'm going to pastor, and I think I'm going to be, you know, associate pastor, I'm going to be a shepherding pastor, I'm going to be, you know, a pastor at a church, but I will never, ever, ever think about pioneering or planning another church. I vowed to myself. Eight years later, uh, no, two years ago, as I was praying at a retreat, God asked me to do an unthinkable. Will you go and plant a church? And said, this is not God's voice. It was confirmed to me eight years ago. And after the retreat, it was weird. Series of things happened. People came up to me and asked me, would you ever consider planting a church? I said, what? And then a church, several churches in Queens invited me to speak. And every time I, invite them in, I, I went to their, their retreats or revivals, they would say, there is a need for second-gen Korean Americans, Chinese Americans as a church that reach out to them, reaches out to these people. And I was like, this can't be a coincidence. And the last confirmation is, as I was reading John chapter 21, and as often as God does, he confirms, he, t- he speaks to us, not from a, a, a voice from heaven necessarily, but he speaks to us through his word. Amen? That's what he does. And, he, and, he did, and, and I, I, I think I was just really like, God, give me a confirmation, give me a confirmation. And he gave me a passage in John chapter 21 when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me, Peter? And at this moment, Peter was a, a devastating wreck. He was a failure of a person. He abandoned Christ. He denied him three times. You guys know the story. And Jesus reinstates Peter by not saying, oh, you are ready to, for church planting. You are ready for ministry. But Jesus asked the simple question, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Tend to my sheep. Do you love me? And I had to respond. I had to respond. And I got connected with Pastor Sam through the CRC gathering and you know, and I just I just felt that and he blessed me. He we had a good conversation. He seemed like uh, you know, we, we, we were able to connect. And here I am sharing this with you, not only God's word, but God's path for me in my life. I don't know what some of you are going through right now. You guys might, you guys might not be planning a church with, with, with another pastor or another church through this church, but for some of you, I know you guys are praying about things that will drastically change your life. Children, job, church you know the Lord is not the, God is not going to give you detailed answers sometimes but he will ask the most 
fundamental yet important question. John, Peter, do you love me? And feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Then love your pastor, Pastor Sam. Serve not only his family, not only this church. See what he's struggling with inside. You see, pastors, it's so hard for us to share what we're struggling with. So beyond, you know, we can't, we know that the, at, on, on the pulpit, it's, you know, we need to be faithful to God's word and we don't, wanna, we don't want it to be about ourselves. And, and, and rightfully so, we shouldn't be talking about our lives in the pulpit, on the pulpit. Yet, what Satan tries to do to break and to divide his kingdom is to go straight at the source, straight at the heart, and that is the pastor. Some things that Jesus will ask you, is your child more important to me than me? Is your pension plan, is your house more important to you than, than me? And these are the things that, that we need to wrestle with. Because Jesus says, my kingdom is not of the world, of this world. My kingdom is from another place. And that is why Jesus was able to go on that cross, weeping, yes, with, with everything that he has, all his soul breaking, not because he is leaving something behind in this world, but he knows that it was the burden that he had to bear, the sin of this world was so great. Yet he looked to the Father. And I want to pray and hope that Good News Church here in Manhattan will look to Jesus Christ and that, that we would get out of our own kingdom and we participate in the kingdom of God now. Amen? Let's pray together.